Stories of Communism 13, Communists Take a Bath. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. Having made it through a few more serious episodes, we're now going to take another look at the lighter side of communism through the eyes of famous Soviet author Mikhail Zoshenko. You might call Zoshenko the Seinfeld of 1920s Russia. He loved to poke fun at the little details of daily life and the silly behavior of common people who didn't quite understand what they were doing or just weren't quite competent at their jobs. Most of the stories aren't overtly political, but if you read between the lines, you can often spot an embedded critique of the communist system and its effects on people's daily lives. Today we'll be looking at a few selections from his classic short story collection, Scenes from the Bathhouse, as translated by Sidney Monis. Perhaps Zoshenko's most famous story is the title story of that collection, The Bathhouse, where he describes the challenges of visiting a rather poorly run public bathhouse. Here's an excerpt. Last Saturday, I went to one of our bathhouses, and they gave me two tickets, one for my linen, the other for my hat and coat. But where is a naked man going to put tickets? To say it straight, no place. No pockets, look around. All stomach and legs. Can't tie them to your beard. Well, I tied a ticket to each leg so as to not lose them both at once. All right, so I'm standing. I'm holding the bucket in one hand and washing myself. But all around me, everyone's scrubbing clothes like mad. One is washing his trousers, another is rubbing his drawers, and a third is wringing something out. You no sooner get yourself all washed up, than you're dirty again. They are splattering me, the bastards. I go back to the locker room. I give them one ticket. They give me my linen. I look. Everything's mine. But the trousers aren't mine. Citizens, I say, mine didn't have a hole here. Mine had a hole over there. We aren't here, he says, just to watch your holes. You can see that even though he's not explicitly making a political critique, there are a lot of possible interpretations here about the society of his day. A similarly absurd situation occurs in another story of his, The Overshoot, where he has to deal with an overly bureaucratic lost-and-found office after losing an overshoe on a trolley. Is it possible, brothers, I say? I gave my overshoe back. I lost it in the trolley. Possible, they said. What kind of overshoe? Oh, I said, the ordinary kind, number 12. We have, they said, 12,000 number 12s. Describe its features. The back, of course, is a bit torn. There's no lining in the inside. The lining wore out. The toe looks as though it was cut clean off, but it's still hanging on. And right away, they bring back my overshoe. Naturally, I was besides myself with joy, really touched. Now it's found, I thank you. No, they said. Respected comrade, we cannot give it to you. We, they said, don't know. Maybe it wasn't you who lost it. Bring us some certification that you really did lose the shoe. In the end, the narrator finally succeeds in convincing the office to let him reclaim his old worn overshoe 
Thanks to a written declaration, he gets signed by his building manager. But in the intervening week, he's lost his other overshoe. In the story Kitten and People, he describes a similar situation that doesn't end quite as well when he tries to get some needed repairs approved by his building cooperative. The stove I have works very badly. Sitting around it, my whole family is always stifling from the fumes. And that housing cooperative devils refuses to make any repairs. They are economizing and current expenses. Nothing wrong, they said. One can live. Comrades, I said, it's downright shameful to outer words like that. Even our kittens stifle from the fumes. In that case, they said, we'll set up an experiment now and have a look at whether your stove is really stifling. We warmed up the stove. We deposited ourselves around it. We sit. We sniff. Naturally, the fumes soon began to spread through the room. The chairman took a sniff and he says, Not a thing. Don't smell a thing. The kitten comes, sits herself down in the bed, sits calmly. She's already gotten a bit used to it. Suddenly, the treasurer rocks on the bed and says, You know, I got to hurry. I got business to attend to. And he goes over to the window and breathes through the chink. And he's turning green and swaying on his feet. Eventually, the chairman is taken away in an ambulance, but still refuses to acknowledge an issue with the stove. It's interesting to note that this story is getting dangerously close to a political point, mocking the widespread economization initiative promoted by the government at that time. In some of Zoshenko's stories, though, he takes more direct aim at the incompetence of low-level communist bureaucrats and the way they gain power. In A Metropolitan Deal, he discusses the efforts of a village to elect a local chairman to replace the rich parasite previously in charge. This is indirectly referencing the public jealousy and resentment over the growth of rich kulaks, successful business owners in the 1920s. You may recall from episode one the violent rage the government would unleash against them a few years later. But that's not the focus here, it's just on the selection of the new chair. Brothers, someone shriek. This is no election. We need to choose advanced type comrades. Someone who will know his way around the city. That's the kind we need. Who will know everything through and through, right? They shriek in the crowd. Some advanced types we need. That's the way it's done around here. How about Leshka Kanalovov? Someone said timidly. He's the only one who's come from the city. He's a metropolitan deal. Leshka, they shrieked in the crowd. Step out, Leshka. Tell the group. Well now, said Leshka, a bit confused. Me, you can choose. I scratched around the city for about two years. Me, you can choose. Speak, Leshka. Report to the group, the crowd shrieked once again. I can speak, said Leshka. Why not speak when I know it all? Unlike you all, I'm a culture man. For two years, I shook loose from the greatness of country life. In the second place, my tongue is very fluent. I can make speeches. Nowadays, that isn't just a pound of steam. You're right, Leshka, they said in the crowd. Without a tongue, a man's a sheep. Only the tongue makes men. That's just it, Leska confirmed. 
The tongue makes knowledge. Of course, one needs to know the law code, statutes, decrees. All this I know. I'm sitting in my cell and they come running up to you. Explain, Leshka. Look here. Someone in the crowd picks up on the mention of the cell and soon they discover that Leshka gained all his metropolitan sophistication while in jail for theft. In the end, they choose not to put him in charge, though the clear implication is that he would have been fine if he didn't slip up and mention his cell. Similarly, in another of Zoshenko's tales, an instructive story, he takes even more direct aim at poorly chosen leaders and fat, lazy bureaucrats. So once in a certain administration, a certain rather large worker named C.H. was employed. In the course of 20 years, he occupied solid positions in the administration. At one time, he was the head of the local committee. Then he was moved to the position of administrative director. Then he was made the boss of something else. Of course, C.H. was not an engineer or technician. And even in general, it seems his education was rather on the weak side. Anything special, he did not know how to do. He didn't even have a very good handwriting. This is what happened at the last meeting. He had made a burning, passionate speech. The workers, that is, labor, they are working, alertness, solidarity. And suddenly, just think, a certain worker gets up, one of the motormen. Now that we heard the convincing speech of Comrade C.H., I would like to ask him, well, what is it that he wanted to say? What does C.H. contribute to our work? The point is that he doesn't know how to do anything. He only makes empty speeches. But just think, in 20 years, we outgrowing this. The chairman got a little scared. He didn't know how he was supposed to react to all this. Don't worry too much about poor comrade C.H., though. After he admits that he doesn't know anything and never claimed to, the meeting ends with everyone laughing together and still friends. In a darker turn, though, there are a few cases where Zoshenko directly attacks the low-level corruption that common citizens had to face at every turn, as in the story A Weak Container. Nowadays, bribes aren't taken. Formally, it was impossible to move a step without either giving or taking. Lately, we've been dispatching goods from the freight station. The weigher, an employee of the highest and most noble type, spouts numbers rapidly, takes notes, applies the weights, paces labels, and issues explanations. Only suddenly, we notice that for all the beauty of his work, the weigher is very demanding about the rules. He watches the interests of his fellow citizens and the state very closely. To every third or fourth person, he refuses to accept their freight. The container is a bit loose. He won't take it. Instead of feeling badly, reinforce your container. There is a man loafing somewhere around here with some nails. Eventually, a frustrated customer tries to solve the problem the traditional way before the narrator finally gets to the heart of the issue. He flushes, remembers something long forgotten. He digs out five rubles worth of money and single ruble notes, and he wants to give them to the weigher. Then the weigher turns purple at the sight of the money. He yells, 
Is this how you get it? A bribe you want to give me? You four-eyed horse? Of course, the one in glasses grasps right away the complete shamefulness of his position. The wearer says, For shame, bribes are not taken here. I approach the worker and ask him in any case to reinforce my devious container. He asks me for eight rubles. I say, You're kidding. Eight rubles? I say, For three nails? He said to me in an intimate tone, Put yourself in my delicate position. I have to share up with this crocodile. You share up with a wear. With all this direct and indirect criticism of various aspects of 1920s Soviet society, it's a bit surprising that Zoshenko didn't end up arrested or killed like so many of his fellow writers in the following years. There certainly were many Soviet critics who considered his work offensive and denounced him, but he was saved by his large number of fans, even among communist officials, who considered his writings hilarious. One aspect that helped was Zoshenko's instinctive focus on the bottom rungs of the hierarchy. He never criticized the upper leadership or the system itself, so he could be said to be merely mocking local incompetence and poor implementation of the new systems. He also tended to put words in the mouth of seemingly clueless or buffoonish characters, so he could often claim any controversial statements were not his own. During the Stalinist period of the 1930s, however, Zoshenko apparently got nervous about his future and tried to please officials by writing some orthodox propaganda for the government. Most notoriously, he contributed to the essay collection The White Sea Canal, which praised Stalin's wasteful and inefficient canal project that cost the lives of thousands of gulag prisoners. This may have helped him avoid arrest during the mass purges of the 1930s, but his irreverent attitude towards communism could not be tolerated forever. Finally, in 1946, he was denounced and expelled from the Soviet Writers' Union, and did not publish any more major stories after that but its hilarious writings from the 1920s will be sure to live on for a long time to come. Now we have the final portion of the podcast where Manuel steps out from behind his uh, quotes and uh, talks about what he thinks about the topic we've been discussing today. Uh, so, Manuel, uh, what do you think? Oh, Eric, this is very distressful. Distressful because everything seems to start with good intentions, and then good intentions become are taken by the government and become rules and more rules and rules and the people following the rules lose track of the good intentions and we end up with a mess. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, one thing that we see in Zoshenko's stories is that, you know, these rules, no matter how well intended they may have originally been, they're implemented by human beings with all the flaws that human beings have. We saw, you know, the simply uncaring, like the bathhouse attendant. We see, you know, incompetent people. Uh, we see, of course, people who are just so concerned about, you know, high-level rules that they completely ignore the effects they have on, on their ordinary citizens day to day. And then, of course, there are the clever ones, like the uh, wayer, who see ways to get around the rules and, you know, make things work out best for themselves. I'm not sure if you know, but we are leaving some of these experiences nowadays uh, with some of the bureaucracy in place. As uh, business owners, we find that it one rule after another and eventually who knows some of the people that work there may be just looking out for their own positions but they 
don't even believe in all those rules anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think recently you told me about a case where, you know, you've been planting trees since you were a child, but you were told by a government official you're not competent to plant trees now. What, what was the deal Exactly. They passed a new rule, says that in the city where we live, that uh, these new trees had to be planted only by someone who was under the direct supervision of a landscape architect. This is after we had been planting trees for 31 years. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you wonder what the, rela the relationship between the, the city and those, you know, landscape architecture, you know, schools and organizations, is that really that different than the relationship between the uh, package weigher and the guy with the nails there? I don't think so. I, I have found that many of these rules are actually created by industrious people themselves. Yeah, yeah. But the good thing is, you know, here in the U.S., we... Uh, are living in a system where the government doesn't control absolutely everything. So you've been able to find uh, many cases where your company is able to plant trees and, and not have to meet government regulations to that extent, right? Exactly. Homeowners are still not requiring, and private people are not requiring a landscape architect to be watching you plant a tree. Wow. I guess uh, it's good that we still have that level of freedom. But it is something to think about. You know, when, when people say that we need a socialist system because life is unfair and we need the government to make everything fair, is the government really going to make everything fair? Yeah. And I must say that there are groups of people trying to make it a rule that also private individuals have to have that landscape architect watch you put the roots in the ground and not upside down. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, let's, let's hope you can remember which way a tree grows long <laughs> enough for your business to survive. This was definitely a very interesting story, Eric, and it, it just brings some humor to otherwise depressing stories. So if you need a lighthearted break from the grim retelling of communist history in our other episodes, be sure to check out Mikhail Zoshenko's Scenes from the Bathhouse as well as with other short story collections available in translation. And this has been your story of communism for today. <laughs>